0: Thank you, John Michael. All right. So, um, in many ways, this teaching this afternoon goes back to the '90s. Um, I'm not going to spend time telling Amy and my story. I think most of you have heard it. If not, come and ask us, and we'd love to sit down with you and talk through. Because the the primary thing I want to say is, what happened in the '90s and the early 2000s was very unlooked for by us. It was unasked for except that we ask the Lord, Oh, God, we love you. Do anything. <laughs> a very dangerous prayer. <laughs> so we're very surprised by what he's done um, in terms of Amy becoming Catholic in 2001 and, uh, and then leading us into uh, what does it mean, uh, what does Catholic Protestant reconciliation mean? So in a way, it goes that far back. In another way, it goes back to when we purchased this house. So about two summers ago when we were still under contract and hadn't yet finalized the purchase of this house, um, I announced to Amy, which is I'm learning is not the best thing to do, but in this case, I think it was OK. Oh, we're going to call this place Christ the Reconciler. It just kind of came to me, and I, I oftentimes say things that are unfiltered by my brain, and that's not always wise. But in this case, we sensed it was perhaps the Holy Spirit. And the only way to really confirm the word of the Lord in something like this is to go to Google and find out if anybody else has <laughs> reserved that domain name. <laughs> so sure enough, ChristTheReconciler.org, etc. was available, which I actually couldn't believe. And so we grabbed it. And so later, I guess a year later, we had moved in and were beginning to think about a year-long teaching in Reconciliation, and I thought, you know, we named this place Christ the Reconciler. Is that a biblical idea? <laughs> Maybe this is a really bad idea. So I, did, so I went and did a little bit of kind of word study in the New Testament to say where is the word reconciliation used and in what context and is Christ involved at all in the area of reconciliation. And I knew some of the passages. Many of them will be familiar to you. Um... But uh, what I found was that Paul used the word reconciliation six times, the specific Greek word. And Jesus used it once, a slightly different Greek word. And so so the encouraging thing was that in Paul's, all of Paul's uses, well, not all, in many, the key ones for Paul, the idea of Christ's role in reconciliation was very front and center. So that was encouraging (laughs) to me. And that really was the, uh, the genesis of this series of talks, is to look at those six scriptures and actually the seventh one as well, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, and to say, what is the Lord saying here? How do we understand reconciliation? If we're a community called to reconciliation, what does it mean and how do we understand it? And so we've been uh, we gave a teaching on this in January. Once again, I don't want to rehash all this. It's online. You can listen to it. But I think it's important to lay the groundwork. In January, Amy talked about the unity of the Trinity, because for us, the most important passage in all of this whole discussion is John 17. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, prays the longest recorded prayer in Scripture, and he prays, it's the only prayer he's just recorded that he prays for you and me. He clearly prays for us. I pray for all those who will believe after these, meaning the disciples. And what does he pray, I mean, of all the things he could have prayed for, he could have prayed for a lot of things. <laughs> he prayed that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. So, the, so the, Amy spoke about the unity of the Trinity and that that's, that's, what we're, that's what anchors us. There are all sorts of other things that you could kind of go off on in this area, but we want to be anchored in the prayer of Jesus because we believe it, it contains a significant, important truth of his heart. Okay? Okay. So then I jumped in after Amy and said, well, if, if unity is what we're after, is that what we're seeing in our lives and in the world and in the church? And the answer was no. <laughs> well, how, how do you describe what we're seeing? And the word that's used in the New Testament in these passages is hostility, which is a strong word. But it, it's, it's what Paul says is that reconciliation removes Hostility. When we were enemies of Christ, that's the same word, hostile. When we were hostile to Christ, God reconciled us through the death of his son. So that's where this idea of hostility and reconciliation came from, was looking at these passages and saying, what is Paul saying? And the, and the beautiful thing is, if you go back to Matthew 5, where Jesus uses the word host- reconciliation, um, it's, it's got the same pattern to it. You have, you have hostility, which is murder, Anger, contempt, and then right after that, if your brother has anything against you, go to him and be reconciled. So that's a beautiful thing to see that that uh, Paul's teachings draw from what Jesus taught. Okay, so that was January, and then May we looked at these six and said there's really three arenas if you look at these six teachings on reconciliation in the New Testament from Paul, and of course the Jesus one being added in would be seven. There's really three arenas where it's described that reconciliation is taking place. One is, and the most important, is between God and people, God and man. We talked about that this morning. This is, let's not lose sight of this. The most important reconciliation is between God and man. Christ calls sinners to be reconciled to God. Through the power of the death of Jesus on the cross, we who are hostile to God have made ourselves hostile to him, have been invited to lay down that hostility and come in. And I talked last time about God has laid down his hostility first, which is a beautiful thing, because his hostility was justified. (laughs) He had good reasons for it. Ours is not justified, and yet we hold on to it. So that's number one, between God and people. Number two, between man and woman. We talked about that last time. Uh, I think I don't need to go into much detail here because we all have experience in this area of hostility, right? In one way or another. Number three is brother to brother. Peers, as I said earlier. And so, once again, one of the beautiful things about this study was to say it's very clear that this echoes Genesis and the hostility and division that happened in Genesis of God and man becoming divided, and then man and woman becoming divided, and then brother and brother becoming divided. So once again, that's encouraging to say what's happening, what's being unfolded in the New Testament is, is directly applicable to the story of humankind and to undoing the hostility that was put in in the very early days of the life of humanity. Okay, so that's a, a little bit of a background. And as you, as you know, this morning we talked about that brother-to-brother hostility on a personal level. All right. Number two, preface point. We are learning. In no way is this a, uh, a final teaching. <laughs> this is in a certain way, we've been building up to it, and this is an important teaching, but you might think of it as the, you know, the ending part of the first movement of something that's, that I think we're in the midst of. So it's important and it's a resolution and a culmination in a certain way, but it's not at all a finale. We have a lot to learn. We're gonna, I'm going to say things wrong in this teaching because it's not an easy teaching. I'm going to say things that are right poorly. And I'm going to be incomplete. There's no question about that. Okay? So please walk with us through this because we are still learning. And, 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 and it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's a, as a community we're considering this, not as individuals. All right? Number three, all of us are going to struggle with some parts of this teaching. Some of us may struggle with all parts of this teaching. (laughs) That's okay, hang in there. Including me, I struggle with parts of this teaching. We're in progress. All right, are you ready? That's the preface. Okay, so the third arena of hostility, brother to brother, sister to sister, that Amy so beautifully talked about this morning, we're going to take global and historical. And it's not our idea to do this. It's Paul's idea. Okay. But in doing it, the reason I think this is so important is the third arena of hostility and reconciliation is our arena in a certain special way. Okay? What do I mean by this? Well, by our, I mean the community that's in formation. It's not at all a a set thing. It's still being formed um, around AHOP, around Christ the Reconciler. We are, the reality is we are formed, we are a community formed of Protestants and Catholics. In this room are Protestants and Catholics. We pray daily for reconciliation and unity between these two streams of the body of Christ. Now, is it only these two streams? No. But in a special way, we're called to this because of the way God's shaped our history. Okay, Hostility between Catholics and Protestants is in the third arena. It's not a, a God-man-unsaved-to-save hostility. It's not a man-to-woman hostility. It's a brother-to-brother, peer-to-peer, stream-to-stream hostility. Okay? Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17, which is so foundational for us, he prays for a brother-to-brother unity. I could say a lot about that, but think about Jesus. He's, he's going to the cross, and he's got this band of 12 guys. And I almost think he's praying, Lord, keep them together through this. You know, I know what's going to happen, but they don't really know what's going to happen. And when I come out on the other side, are they even going to be together? Are they going to be scattered to the four winds? Keep them together, okay? But the beautiful thing is he extends that to to all who believe. Let them be one. Let them stay together, okay? John 17 is in the third arena. Um, Other areas of reconciliation that God has already drawn us into, besides Catholic and Protestant, and besides the kind of personal reconciliation we did this morning, um, include racial and cultural. God's already brought us into areas of racial reconciliation, of cultural reconciliation. Okay, these are also in the third arena. These are also brother to brother. All right, Does that make sense? Now, when I say I are here, I don't mean that we possess it. <laughs> in the sense that there's no one else that's, you know, work in this arena. It's, it's, it's possessed us there's many others who are also gripped by this arena and at work in it so we are there's amazing things happening on the earth right now in this arena of brother to brother hostility okay all right now to say this third arena is in a special way our arena is not to minimize the first two we spent time on them for on purpose okay Hostility between people and God. That's, we've got to be at work in this area. When we come across people who have this kind of hostility, we have to urge them, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. Also, hostility between husband and wife. This actually affects our mission. It's very interesting to me that Peter points to the idea that, that a husband, if a husband mistreats a wife and does not honor her, Rightly, his prayers will be hindered. Now, extending the third arena to groups and cultures and races, denominations, this is, this is not my idea. This originates from this study of Paul's use of the word reconciliation. As I mentioned, he uses it six times. Now, you've got a handout with all six scriptures on it. I've given this handout before. This is a slightly improved version of the one I gave last time, <laughs> but I wanted you to have it. And on the back side, it has the definition of reconciliation and these words that have been kind of a help to us in terms of what does hostility look like, what does unity look like and feel like. All right. Each of these passages, except one, interestingly enough, the one that people probably think of first, the one in 2 Corinthians 5, explicitly references the word hostility or concepts of hostility. We covered this in detail in January. and In in January, we formed this working definition. Working definition, we're still in progress. Reconciliation. What is reconciliation? A series of actions that removes hostility in a relationship, repairs the damage it caused, and restores God-intended unity. So this is our working definition of reconciliation. Okay? Now interestingly enough, this whole talk of the three arenas and now the third arena is really looking at one word in this definition which is relationship. What are the relationships where this is at play? I mean there's so much we haven't talked about yet. Actions we're going to talk about next time, but then there's I mean there's a lot here. <laughs> we have our work cut out for us in a beautiful way as a community. All right? In previous uh, Teachings. We looked in depth at all of these passages. Today, we're going to focus on one of them, which is really the key third arena passage in Paul's writing. That is in Ephesians 2, uh, the top of the second column on your handout. But before we read it, it's important to look at some other beautiful, hopeful passages on unity that come from Ephesians. So I need three readers. Volunteers. One two, three, great. And it's up on the screen here. What to read. Can you, can you see it? Yeah, you may need to move because I don't have it on the handout. These are all from Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, Just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the pastors and teachers Mm -hmm. to equip His people for works of service, Mm -hmm. so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Good, thank you. So I hope these passages are already very dear to us. We have a heart—oops—have a heart for the unity of the body of Christ, and these passages speak to that beautifully. And so let's memorize, pray, study these passages. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, what is the context of these passages? It's not Catholic-Protestant unity <laughs> because that, didn't, that division didn't exist yet. <laughs> it's given in Ephesians 2 so I need two readers for the two slides of Ephesians 2 Jerry and Jenny great this is the first one Jerry therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Keep going. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so may peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Therefore, I'm sorry, thereby, Bringing the hostility to an end, and he came and preached peace to you thank who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Good, thank you. And this last part, I think, is the part that's on your handout. Mm-hmm. All right, so the context of the unity passages that come later in Ephesians 4 and also, the unity passages in most, but not all, of the New Testament. John 17 is an example of praying for unity. They were all Jews there. So that was not, that's not a prayer for unity between Jews and Gentiles. But most of the passages in the New Testament has to do with this division or this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. The passage talks about hostility between Jew and Gentile. Did you catch that? The word hostility. Twice there this is a brother-to-brother hostility literally Isaac and Ishmael it's still playing out so why as Gentile I think all of us in this room Gentile Protestants Gentile Catholics Christians should we care about Jew Gentile hostility and reconciliation I want to suggest two reasons. I think I've only got one. We're going to look at one in depth, and then we'll get to the second one. So number one, the patterns of Jew-Gentile hostility have repeated themselves in the historic streams of the church. This is very hopeful, actually. It doesn't sound very hopeful. <laughs> It is because it means that we can take hope, take heart from, and also learn from the pattern of reconciliation that's presented by Paul between Jew and Gentile for the areas of reconciliation brother to brother that we are called to, okay? The patterns of Jew-Gentile hostility have repeated themselves in the history of the streams and development of the church. All right. So let's take a look at the patterns of hostility between Jew and Gentile. They won't be unfamiliar to you because of what we covered this morning. But first, I want to be clear that this is I'm speaking from my own Gentile Protestant experience. <laughs> so take it take it as a limited set of observations and a limited read of history and very simplified. I'm actually going to present three different layers that kind of comp- build on each other but there is a lot more in terms of complexity, history, sophistication than just these three layers Um, but it's helpful to look at them like this morning, it's helpful to look at these things okay, so layer one the Jews are like the younger favored brother like Abel like Isaac like Jacob like Joseph In what way? Well, the Jews are God's chosen people. God, the father of all the peoples of the earth, chose one of them out from the others. Remember Joseph? Jacob's favorite? It's kind of like that. The younger favored brother. What about the nations? Now, What do I mean by nations? By nations, I mean the Gentiles. So is Israel a nation? Yes. But when I say nations, and actually this is very helpful to understand in in both the Old and the New Testament, when the word nations is used, oftentimes it means all the nations apart from Israel. And that's helpful sometimes in in reading um, the Bible. So what about the nations? Well, the nations are not God's chosen people. God chose Israel. That's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? That's us. That can make for jealousy and hostility. It's exactly what Amy was talking about this morning. What is the temptation? For the older brother. Why did God choose the choose? How can we get rid of them? You laugh. That's the history. The last 4,000 years. Remember Joseph's brothers. How can we get rid of this? If we get rid of him, then, then the Father might like us better. So that's one layer. On a second layer, it's reversed, and the Gentile church is the younger, favored brother. So Jesus was a Jew. But at times, he seemed to purposefully confront fellow Jews who seemed to have a sense of entitlement or a victim mentality. Remember the parable of the vineyard? The first church was composed of Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews. But as the church grew, somewhat to their surprise, the Holy Spirit began to fall upon the Gentiles. The response of the Jewish leaders of the church was very gracious. Peter recognized Cornelius as a fellow follower of the way. James did not insist that Gentiles be circumcised. Hallelujah! <laughs> As the church grew, Gentiles began to predominate in numbers and in leadership. When they gained the upper hand, they did not return the graciousness of the Jewish leaders towards them. Once again, I'm speaking in generalities, but bear with me. There began to be this sense of if you're a Jewish Christian, you either need to not be a Jew or not be a Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, you leave your Jewishness behind. So that began to be at play in the first couple hundred years of the church. Then, as we know, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. The people of Israel were scattered through the nations. The church grew. The Christian church grew and became the leading religion in the world rich and powerful in many places. The younger brother was on top. Remember Joseph in Egypt, who was in power when his brothers came from the famine in Israel looking for food. A little bit like that. Except that Joseph had to excuse himself sometimes because he was weeping. He was wrestling with this. I'm not sure the church has that same weeping about this division. In fact, the church, the history is that there's been active persecution of the Jews and anti-Semitism. I don't think there's been a lot of questioning of what is God doing? What is the deeper story? What is the deeper purpose at work? As you see in the Joseph story where he says, now I understand. Why, why it had to be this way. God had a deeper, a longer, a bigger purpose in mind. Okay? All right, so those are, those are two layers of this kind of Jew-Gentile, older brother, younger brother relationship. And so it's easy to imagine from Amy's talk this morning What are some of the temptations that go both ways? Okay. The fact that this is presented by Paul as an example of brother-to-brother reconciliation means that we can learn much from Ephesians 2 that will help us in the area of Protestant-Catholic reconciliation. There's a pattern... Of hostility and so the model of reconciliation that's set forth can help us a lot in addressing the same or similar pattern of hostility that's my point okay three three ways number one what's the pattern hostility is what divides the two groups so in the Ephesians 2 the dividing wall of hostility That seems kind of, in a way, it seems obvious. Like, yeah, okay. (laughs) But this is actually a really important truth. It has important consequences. Academics can find any number of complex historical, cultural, theological reasons for divisions between Protestants and Catholics. These are real. They're not, I'm not saying they're not real. These are real, and they're not to be minimized, and they're also not to be avoided. This is something I've learned from my wife when someone's over and we're talking about this around the table, and they're like, well, I have this real problem with Catholic theology. (laughs) My tendency is to say, wait, 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 that's not, we don't need to pay attention to that. Let's, you know, let's talk about the relational aspects. And Amy's like, no, we've got to talk about this. It's real, these are not unimportant issues. But Paul identifies the core issue as hostility. The core problem isn't theology, it's hostility. Anger, violence, contempt. So if the goal of reconciliation is removing hostility, is it enough to form joint committees tasked with resolving theological differences. No, it's not enough. Now these efforts can help, they're actually very helpful. But until hostility is recognized and removed, theological agreement reached will not result in deep relational unity. So even if the committee succeeds, as has happened, and is happening more and more. It doesn't mean there's a deep relational unity that results. And, on the flip side, if hostility is removed, whole new possibilities appear on the theological horizons. If there's meetings where there's historical grievances and anger and contempt, they're not going to go very far. But when those are Dealt with, then the the other issues become addressable. I mean, this is obvious on a personal level, right? If you have a husband and wife who are angry and hostile with each other, you can't talk about who's going to do the dishes. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't. But if you resolve the hostility, then you begin to talk about okay, (laughs) now we've got to live together. How are we going to do that? All right? Now, hostility is what divides the two groups. This is real, the violence is real. My stream, the Protestant stream has murdered people in your stream, the Catholic stream. There's been wars that have been fought between Protestants and Catholics. Not so much anymore, thank the Lord, although we've seen violence between Protestants and Catholics in our day, haven't we? Where does the hostility come now? It comes primarily in our words. And this is real hostility. It's not, removing the S doesn't say, okay, we're down now at level 1 instead of level 10 power weapon, for those of you who are into video games. Words like swords, the psalmist writes. Jesus says, we talked about this last time, murder, he, 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 he makes equivalent to murder, anger and contempt. Anyone who says, you fool, is guilty. In the same way that if you look on a woman with lust in your eyes, you're, you're guilty of adultery. He, equiv- he, he, he makes that equiv- equivalency in the Sermon on the Mount. But The first one he starts with is anger, actually murder, and then he says anger and then contempt, you fool. So words are really, hostility is real in words. And this is, this is how it, these are the weapons of choice in our day and time for the most part. All right? All right, so that was point one. Hostility is what divides the two groups. Point two, each group must be reconciled with God first in order to be reconciled with each other. So in Ephesians 2, it says, might reconcile us both to God, us both, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. So when... I, as a gentile, am jealous of the Jew. God chose, I don't know why he chose them. My primary complaint is actually with God. He did the choosing. And we saw this last time we met in May, when we looked at the story of Cain and Abel and immediately the question was, well, why did God favor Abel? So so there's a, the the reconciliation arenas get intertwined here, right? In the same way, if I, as a Protestant, am self-satisfied that my church is very active on the missions field, and look down on my Catholic brothers and sisters as not being very evangelistic, my problem is actually with God first. The problem is one of pride. I'm proud. Pride is a sin. I must repent of my pride. I must humble myself. I must be reconciled with God first in order to be reconciled with my brother. For example, God, please forgive me for not asking what your larger purpose has been in giving us grace for missions and evangelism. Help us understand how we fit into your purposes on the earth. God, I have taken your gift and used it to elevate myself above my brothers. I am sorry. Can my church's strength and missions become a blessing to my Catholic brothers and sisters? Okay, number three. Christ reconciles us by joining us together in himself, not by replacing one with the other. So in the Ephesians 2, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. One new man in place of the two. Now, the Gentile church often teaches that it has replaced the Jewish people sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. So the promises that were for Israel now no longer apply to Israel. They belong exclusively to the church. If God has permanently rejected them, then we're free to do the same. So it justifies hostility. But we have to be careful because we reap what we sow Hostility is a cycle. For example, Lutherans can believe they've replaced Catholics as the true form of biblical Christianity. Then to make a leap, the Church of Christ sees the Lutherans as liberals. We have replaced them. We're the ones who truly follow the New Testament. Then the emergent church replaces the Church of Christ and all the other old, stodgy mainline denominations. We're not only saved, we're really cool. We have great music. And so on, until they're replaced by the next thing that comes along. As pri- and pride and arrogance multiply, as you're the younger brother, the new thing on the block. Until it becomes jealousy and resentment when all of a sudden you realize you're not the younger brother anymore, you're now the older brother. So this is, this is how this thing plays out. I think we could all name churches where we've seen this dynamic at play. But this is not the way of Christ. He doesn't replace the Jew with the Gentile. He joins them into one new man. Wow. He grafts the wild Gentile branches into the cultivated Jewish trunk. He delights in unity and diversity. And Now we're back where we started in January, which is the unity of the Trinity. And the beauty of, and mystery of how that all works. And our part in that story. All right, so we have much to learn from, from this example of how Christ reconciled hostile Jewish and Gentile believers, brothers, brothers, and sisters. The good news is reconciliation is possible in the third arena. This is really good news. There is hope for us Catholics and Protestants. Hallelujah. <laughs> Okay. So that was point one. The patterns of Jew-Gentile hostility have repeated themselves in the historic streams of the church. And then the parallel to that is the pattern of reconciliation that's presented by Paul is a hopeful pattern for us to learn from. That's a lot in and of itself without going to point number two. (laughs) So I wanna pause here and just say, are there any questions? What have I you know, said poorly? Where have I uh, not been clear? Um, there's a lot. This will be a conversation that, that extends over months and years, so don't feel like you have to, to get in all your points now. But if there's anything that seems like, what? That doesn't make sense to me. Can I have a comment? No, no comments allowed. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I don't Just turn it into a question. I don't uh, no. Think this really, like you said anything poorly or just it came to my mind so there's um, in counseling there's a particular theory that is not concerned with the past because the idea is whatever unfinished business you have it will manifest in the present anyways and it's actually really true I've noticed with a lot of people it doesn't matter if they don't want to talk about the past or don't want to think about it because all the baggage that they haven't resolved from it Still comes up in the present, hmm. and so it's it's sort of like if you start with the present, whatever we need to talk about will be there. <laughs> you actually can't hide. It. That's so true. It really just <laughs> that is me true. Of that theory, because I was like, it's it's not even that you repeat it, like, or you can avoid repeating it because it, it is a part of you. That's a very it interesting is, point. If it's your baggage, it's it's really not hidden from me. <laughs> it's there. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point, and that, that will speak into my second point that I'm going to get to in a minute. So Now, I will say, it also can be helpful to go back in the past <laughs> because oftentimes there's wounds that have occurred in the past that need to be specifically addressed. You're correct. The pain exists in the present and will come up. There's no question about that. Once again, I want to say we don't want to minimize the importance of theology. Amy and I pray regularly for the theologians of unity to come forth in the church. And I think, I think there's, you know, in the same way that so there's been theological leaps that have like, oh, you know, Jesus, how he looked at the Old Testament, like, wow. You know, I wouldn't have ever <laughs> interpreted it that way. But you're Jesus, you can do that. I think that there's things that we'll see, kind of things we take for granted now that we might not take for granted in the future. Now, those don't go to the core issues of the gospel of the pre- supremacy of Christ and the importance of the cross and all of that. But there are a lot of other things we hold on to that are causes of hostility. Okay. But that's a, that's a whole nother... Well, next year, we'll do the whole series on... <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord have mercy. Okay. Point number two. Jew-Gentile reconciliation holds a key... Maybe the most important key to reconciliation between the historic streams of the church. So this goes to what you were saying and also what you were saying, Dan. Okay, so let me unpack this a little bit and there's a lot more (laughs) that can be said here that we'll be exploring, but this is very, these are some newly forming ideas, so. So there's a third layer. We looked at those first two layers, right? The idea that the Jew is the older brother, I mean the younger brother of humanity in a sense, and he's favored. Why is he favored? And so there's hostility that develops there. But then you can say, no, the, the church in a certain way is the younger favored brother, and the nation Israel is like the older, you know, maybe bitter brother. There's another layer. Let's, go, let's, let's dive a little deeper. In the the 1960s, the Jesus movement in the United States, for the most part, gave birth to a new, new for us, expression of Christianity. Young hippie Jews who found Jesus began to ask, why can't I be a Jew and a follower of Jesus? This is in places like Washington, D.C., Chicago, New York City. This started happening in the 60s and early 70s. Many of these Jews did not join the historic streams of Gentile Christianity in the rebellious way of the 60s, (laughs) but began to form congregations that have come to be known as Messianic Jewish congregations. Now, through Antioch Network, Wittenberg 2017, TJC2, Amy and I, and some of us in this room, have been privileged to meet some of these leaders who went through this in the 60s and 70s. So David and Emma Rudolph, we met in Antakya. Benjamin Berger, we met in Vulcan Roda. Dan Juster, and Marty Waldman I just met in Dallas. So these are some of the early, you know, hippies. Now they're not hippies anymore. (laughs) Well, some of them are kind of like hippies. So in a way, you can think of it as like a river. If you think of the streams of the church, I love that metaphor to me. There's a lot of power in that metaphor. One of the reasons being that the voice of the church in Revelation is described as being like a voice of many waters. I love to think of these streams of the church The voice of the church is a single voice, a voice like many waters. One of these streams went underground in like the 300s and 400s. The stream of Jews who were Jews and believed Jesus was the Messiah, but weren't part of any of the Gentile expressions of Christianity. And then, in the 1960s, it pops back up. It's like a desert, you know, like Balmeray Springs, where you've got this desert and all of a sudden, pfft, there's a, there's a pool of water there. It's like, why, how? It's just, to me, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's also amazing if you think about the fact that, you know, this is roughly along the same times as Israel becoming a nation again. I mean, it's, that was also very unexpected. Okay. So it's like a river that goes underground only to re- reemerge over a thousand years later. Now, the Holy Spirit seems to be breathing on these congregations. They are growing. They are young. <laughs> the, the maturity is still forming. This is, this, I'm not saying that by observing them. This is what the Messianic Jewish leaders say to us. Money is flowing to them. And some Gentile believers are leaving historic, traditional Christian congregations seeking their Jewish roots in Messianic Jewish churches. However, these Messianic Jewish congregations are pretty much disregarded or looked upon with suspicion by the historic streams. In Germany, one example, the Lutheran Church in Germany, that's the mother church, (laughs) the German Lutherans, Luther was a German, has until recently cut off even the possibility of any conversation with the Messianic Jews why well they did it for fear of offending the non-messianic jews because there's tension between the messianic jews and the non-messianic jews (laughs) all right so here we have the lutherans and the messianic jews who both believe in jesus that should be the most important thing right in a certain way and yet we can't have this conversation because we don't want to offend this other party just interesting to see what's happening so all that to say there's a new younger brother on the scene the Messianic Jews. Our temptation as the older brother might be to be jealous and resentful. That's the temptation of the older brother. And of course, it's not our responsibility, but we can say from what we've been looking at that the Messianic Jews might be struggling with some of the younger brother's temptations. Pride, independence, self-centeredness, and a victim mentality. but our business is what we struggle with right so now this directly applies to us i think i think we're all gentiles in this room if you're a jew and you're deeply offended please tell me because <laughs> I, like i said this is my i'm learning in this area and I'm, even language i don't have right i'm sure but as gentiles we and i'll just say i have to come with to grips with the fact that god originally chose the jews and that choice has not been revoked. We, I, have to stop speaking as if I've replaced Israel, as if the church has replaced Israel, and come to delight in being joined with Israel into one new man in Christ. It's a very different perspective. And as Amy said, Last time in the know this morning. Stop being jealous. Look at what you get. <laughs> this is not a bad deal. <laughs> They're the Chosen people. You can join them. That's awesome. <laughs> so honoring our Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters must be a priority for us as a community. So I'm saying two things essentially today this afternoon. Number 1, The pattern of reconciliation that Paul presents between Jew and Gentile is a pattern we can learn from and and practice in our areas of Protestant and Catholic reconciliation. Number two, the actual Jew-Gentile reconciliation that's still at play in the world needs to be important to us. It needs to be a priority. I believe Father Peter Hocken, Catholic priest from Austria, when he says that the reemergence of the Messianic Jews in the last century is a very hopeful sign for the whole body of Christ. And I have personally seen the truth of George Miley's statement, things change when a Messianic Jew is in the room. He likes to say that. I've seen it. <laughs> I mean, you know, can I describe it? No. But wow, it, it, it's, it's interesting. So, how do we do this? How do we honor Messianic Jews? Well, we actually are already doing it. Wittenberg 2017. So, when I started talking to German Lutheran pastors about Wittenberg 2017 in 2010 and 2011, with the goal of just saying, is this from God? Is it something we should pay attention to and devote time to? Or is it just another Thomas idea that <laughs> needs to be thrown on the trash heap of bad Thomas ideas? The pastors we met with said two things. Number one, this is from God. And it had to come from America because we would have never thought of it. That's what they said. Number two, where are the Messianic Jews? I was like, huh? Huh? I mean, for me, that was like, where are the little green aliens? Like, <laughs> what does this have to do with what I just was talking about? So I'm learning. We're learning. But we are, by God's grace, we have an incredibly strong and diverse group of Messianic Jews who are deeply committed to Wittenberg 2017. I mean, we have people look at us and say, these people are all working together on this project you don't understand how unusual that is. Just just a fun little thing? Um, when we were talking about our Rome meeting. The Rome meeting is going to fall over a Sunday, and so we were <laughs> thinking, what, what are we going to do on Sunday? Because you know, Catholics will go to mass, and other Protestants have to find their own thing. We're going to lose a whole day, and what should we do? This is the Rome meeting coming up of Wittenberg 2017. Well, the, the Europeans came up with an amazing solution. They rented one of the catacombs, they rented a catacomb. And we're going to have a service that's rightly presided by a Catholic bishop, um, a, a leading Lutheran uh, pastor and the Messianic Jew in the catacombs. That is going to be an amazing experience. <laughs> now do y'all want to come to Rome? <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, oh, very good question. Okay. What about the Orthodox Church? So, the Orthodox Church. Um, let me finish what I'm saying here, and then let's hold that question. What are, we, what are you looking at in terms of time? time? Ten after two. Okay. Let me just say, absolutely, the Orthodox are a critical part of this as a stream of the body of Christ. Now, we haven't been focused on that area of reconciliation because... We don't have any Orthodox yet as a part of what we're doing. But we would love to, and in fact, one of our goals this summer that I was talking to Emma about is potentially one, one of the things we'll do in our internship this summer is go visit and start to build relationships with St. Elias, which is one of the Orthodox churches in Austin. So so we don't, you know, we don't have any deep connections there. Wittenberg 2017 would love to have the Orthodox involved but we also have not seen that bridge built yet. George Jerusalem Council Two does have an Orthodox priest on the leadership council of TJC Two, So they are involved there. And for those of you who didn't, didn't hear Dan, were you here when Andy Jackson spoke? Yeah. Okay, so that's, so good, so you, that was an expression of our commitment and importance of the Orthodox. The Orthodox, Bishops, is that the right word? Patriarchs? Uh, they are bishops, and some of them are patriarchs, and some of them are metropolitans. <laughs> but anyway, they're they're gathering, a- gathering next year for the first ecumenical council of the Orthodox Church in like 600 years. Wow. By ecumenical council is meant ecumenical like, yeah, inside. Like yes. Or, uh, yes. Orthodox. Yes. So this, I mean, what's happening in the Orthodox Church? And then, of course, Pope Francis and Patriot Bartholomew, what's happening there is just uh, we're seeing things that are unprecedented in our day in this third arena of hostility. Talk about hostility, how about Catholic Orthodox hostility? <laughs> All right. Okay, so Wittenberg, 2017. Mariana Gull. Many of you have met Mariana. We have a room named after her here. Interestingly enough, Mel came today, the second time she's been here. She's a friend of Karen and Mark's. She's planning on going off and joining Mariana in Israel and working with her. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. TJC2, I don't have time to explain a lot about Jerusalem Council 2, but let me just say, I kind of painted the picture of the first council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, right? Where the question came up of what do we require of the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus? And the answer was not a lot. Now there's more to it than that, but that was the effective answer that was given by the leaders of the church. The idea of Towards Jerusalem Council too, is to have another council in Jerusalem of the significant leaders of all the Protestant streams to extend to the Jewish, Messianic Jewish congregations the same grace that was extended by them in the early days of the church. So for significant Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, leaders to come together and say, you don't have to leave your Jewishness to be a Christian. We honor you as a stream, a fellow brother in the body of Christ. And there's some significant, you know, I was just in the DJCG gathering with Amy, Hamilton and Sandy up in Dallas. I mean, Jack Hayford spoke, John Dawson spoke. This is Father Peter, of course, is a, is a Catholic and, and is, his role in that is supervised by Cardinal Shunborn, who's one of the leading cardinals in the Catholic Church. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Okay, TJC 2. So, one way to avoid the victim mentality of both the older and the younger brother is to take a larger view, to try to lock into the larger view of what God is doing. It's very helpful. The last passage that we haven't covered yet in the New Testament about reconciliation, the Pauline passage, is very helpful in this regard. Let's read this as we close. So, um, I don't know how many slides I have. So, I think it's four maybe. Can I have four readers and if you don't, if you're the fourth one and you don't get to you, then I'm sorry. Mom, number one. Amy, number two. Emma, number three. And the potentially disregarded number four will be me. (laughs) Okay. So this is from Romans chapter 11. Again, I ask, did the Jews stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? <clears throat> Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression needs riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's read this together all out loud. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.